This episode of On The Beat is brought to you by Ingles. Shop online with Ingles Curbside Pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Well, hey everybody, Mike Griffith here. And uh, man, welcome to beginning of the Georgia football dynasty. Uh, you know, back-to-back national championships. To me, that's a dynasty, right? When Georgia goes 15-0 and and beats a team 65-7. to Now, I thought that Georgia would win decisively. I liked this matchup uh, when I saw that Michigan had pretty much gifted TCU 28 points and still almost came back and won that game. My only thought was, there is no way, there is no way that Kirby Smart and Georgia are going to give away 28 points, especially after the close call that the Bulldogs had against the Ohio State, especially after Kirby Smart publicly lit up Stetson Bennett for his mediocre play the first three quarters against Ohio State. You saw Stetson respond in the fourth quarter. I knew he would come up big here. This was Stetson Bennett's legacy game. He accounted for six touchdowns. That ties a college football playoff championship record with Joe Burrow. We're talking about rare air and elite company. Now, look, I don't think Stetson Bennett's going to go on to the NFL and be anybody's fantasy football starting quarterback. But when it comes to college legacies, it's irrefutable. Stetson Bennett is right there. Back-to-back national championships. I know A.J. McCarron uh, did that at Alabama. uh, But the way Stetson did it with those numbers, remarkable, impressive. Uh, A lot to be said for the way the 25-year-old former walk-on quarterback finished his career. And how about the Georgia defense? We talk so much about the last two games – 50 to 30 over LSU, 42 to 41 over Ohio State. We're not used to seeing Georgia give up 71 points in half of a football season, much less two games and over 1,000 yards. Again, I'm thinking to myself, there's no way this defense is going to get rolled by TCU. TCU didn't have enough. They had what? Quinton Johnson, I believe his name was, the the projected first-round pick. Do you know how many catches – Quentin Johnson, the projected first-round pick, had against the Georgia Bulldogs? One for three yards. When Kirby Smart wants to take a player away, he can take a player away. The problem that Georgia's had is when they face NFL arm talent, C.J. Stroud, Bryce Young, Joe Burrow, Mac Jones, Jalen Hurts, Tua Tungvaloa, all NFL guys. Those are the guys that have beat Georgia, okay? This guy, Max Duggan, and listen, heartwarming story, a true Cinderella, wasn't even the starter at the beginning of the year. Maybe if he came back another year, he could be TCU Stetson Bennett. But he does not have NFL arm talent, folks. He's going to be scrapping just like Stetson to find his way on a roster because of the lack of arm talent and arm power. So I didn't think that TCU had what it took. They didn't. Georgia was able to dominate the action. They pulled away. Uh, I got to tell you, the locker room, I was kind of interested to see what that was going to be like. I hadn't been in an open locker room in some time. And when I went in there, obviously, the the cigar smoke wafting through the air. The celebration was on. The way they did it, they took the MVPs. uh, Bullard and Stetson went with Coach Smart into an interview room. And then they did some breakout interviews with some of the stars of the game. Uh, Smile Munden, Kenny McIntosh, to name a couple. And then there was the rest of the locker room. I didn't know who I would find. 
The first guy that I went to was Keely Ringo. And of course, we know Keely now going pro. We all assume that a projected first round pick. Keely's still high off of the game, still feeling good about his teammates. I did ask him, of course, I asked him, what happened on that one play? What happened on that 60 yarder? Can you imagine if Georgia would have won 65 to zero? And you saw what happened in the game that him and Bullard had a miscommunication on the route. They both covered the inside receiver. They weren't sure if the message was communicated. Keeley did hear him. Bullard wasn't sure. They overcame it, obviously, won the football game. So Keeley was a great interview. Uh, talk to Amarius Mims. And I'm going to tell you, I think you're going to see a lot of Amarius Mims in interviews next year. He started his second game at right tackle. He was a five-star. Remember, Amarius kind of went and visited Florida State. And I brought that up to Amarius Mims. I said, you know, hey, man, we all go through our trials and tribulations. Reflect on that for me. What did you learn from that? He said, oh, man, I was immature and young, and I made a foolish decision. He said, my teammates welcomed me back, though. They didn't have to. And Amarius Mims is thrilled to be a bulldog. He's all in. He learned a valuable lesson, and he absolutely manhandled TCU last night. This is going to be an all-preseason, all-SEC lineman. This is going to be another first-team lineman that Georgia has. Very impressed with Amarius. Uh, also talked with uh, – I did hit Bullard up right before he left. You know, and I mentioned to Javon Bullard, I said, you know what, Javon, you had – uh, off the field incident earlier this year. You guys remember uh, Javon was was pulled over late at night, uh, legally intoxicated, missed a game, suspended. I said, what do you learn from that? He said, man, everybody makes mistakes. I learned a lot. He said, I trust in God. He puts his faith in God. He puts his faith in the team. And uh, I kept looking around the room at all the Bulldogs that at different points in their career had different setbacks. I pulled Dominic Blaylock aside, a guy that's had two knee surgeries. You know, and all he wanted to do was celebrate and be there for his teammates. I sat down with Arian Smith, a guy that only had three catches all season, but he had three for 129 against Ohio State. They don't beat Ohio State without Arian Smith. And I loved my money line from Arian was, you know, hey, I don't want to say too much, but we might be even better next year. And that was kind of the prevailing overarching feeling. I didn't go into that locker room and feel a sense of completion. I didn't feel a finality. I felt a process. I felt something that was ongoing. I felt a vibe. N'Kobe Dean was back in there. He was visiting with players. Jamon Dumas Johnson, uh, Smile Monday. I didn't feel that last year, that this year was over with. I felt like this, this, this thing's going on. Like there, there's no end to this. And Jamon Dumas Johnson said, who said you can only win two? If, if we can win three, we're going to win three. If we can win four, we're going to. Why not? Why not go ahead and continue to keep this bar set? Isn't that Kirby smart anyway? The glass is never full. The process is ongoing. Uh, you know, Smile Mund and said, hey, we want to take a couple weeks off, get our bodies right, and we'll attack it again. And you look at that schedule next year, very doable schedule for the Georgia Bulldogs. You're seeing uh, history in the making with Georgia football, I believe, taking over college football. I don't know if you saw uh, David Pollack sitting next to Nick Saban on set last night. And he said, you got to give Georgia credit. They're taking over college football. And, you know, Nick Saban kind of paused and kind of had that moment, that look on his face. I don't think it was a realization. I just don't think anybody's ever had the cojones to say that around the guy before. And him being on the set, um, he took a punch. That was a punch from Pollock. I'll tell you what, though, a lot of recruits out there watching that game, they saw Nick say he wasn't there because he wanted to do color commentary. He wasn't there because he really wanted to watch. 
he was there to recruit folks. Nick Saban's still fighting. He's still kicking. Him being on that set, I guarantee you, in his world, that's misery. He doesn't want to do that stuff. But that's part of the job to stay out in front of people. You got to give Coach Saban credit. He's not going without a fight. And they're going to have to find a quarterback. George is going to have to find a quarterback. So you saw the video I did with Carson Beck. I've got another one coming with Brock Vandergriff and Gunnar Stockton. You're going to be real interested to hear what these guys had to say. In short, they all know nothing's given, nothing's promised. There is no certainty to this quarterback battle. We know that. We learned it last year. We didn't understand it at the time last year when Stetson went on Good Morning America and said he wasn't sure if he was going to come back because he didn't know if he could trust the coach's decision, quote, unquote. Stetson did not know if he could trust the coach's decision. We're all thinking to ourselves, what, is, what does that mean? What, what do you mean you don't know? He, he, what we didn't know that Stetson knew was that Georgia was pursuing Caleb Williams in the transfer portal. You know, one of you know, a handful of quarterbacks that would have been better than Stetson, a Heisman Trophy winner. Georgia had recruited Caleb out of high school, and they thought they had a shot. Now, USC had a bigger shot and a bigger bag of money, and Caleb Williams had played in Lincoln Riley's system before, and he trusted it, and he went there, and he did fantastic. Once Caleb Williams was headed out to USC, that's when Stetson recommitted and he was all in. And they basically said the job's yours. There was no quarterback competition. It was an understanding. Stetson's not coming back unless it's his job. And he did fine with it, as Carson Beck said. You know, and now we're national champions again. So we will see who wins the quarterback battle. I did think it interesting today when someone asked Kirby Smart, I believe it was Jeff, Jeff Schultz of The Athletic, said, how, if at all, has Stetson Bennett changed how you analyze quarterbacks and how you view the position. And Kirby said that the mobility that Stetson brought, and he cited a play, and I bet you all know what play I'm talking about when George goes five wide, because they don't go five wide very often. They go five wide, empty set, and a rush end comes in unblocked on Stetson. Stetson spins away and turns it into a, I don't know, 12, 21-yard gain. And, And Kirby mentioned that. He said, you know, you're the defensive coordinator. You've just called the perfect play, and you got beat on it. Because of that 11th player, that offensive player that you don't always or typically account for, Kirby loves the mobility. And he said, you know, if Stetson's an eight on a scale of one to 10 on mobility, he says, you got to at least be a six. And I'm thinking to myself, what what does that mean? Is Carson Beck a six? I mean, we all think Carson Beck is next in line because, as Jake Fromm said, prototypical NFL player. But does Beck have the mobility? And where's Brock Vandergriff? We know Brock can run around and run over people. Kind of reminds me of Tim Tebow when you look at how big he is and how athletic he is. Very strong arm. Not sure about the intermediate and deep throw. Just haven't seen enough to judge him. I'll tell you who surprised me was Gunnar Stockton. You know, when I saw Gunnar when he first came in, I thought he was kind of short. But as I stood there and talked to him at the Los Angeles Convention Center Saturday, I'm, I'm looking up. You know, Gunner's grown a few inches, folks. Let me tell you, this kid's big enough. Make no mistake about it. He is definitely big. He is not small. He is tall, and he is thick. Now, he's not as tall as Brock or Carson, but he's tall enough. You know how big he is? He's about Jake Fromm's size, and Jake is fine. And Jake, Jake's a thick body, by the way. I don't know if anybody's ever been around Jake Fromm. Let me tell you, you know, Jake Fromm is a dude, okay? He's, he's a wide-body, strong kid. So I was very impressed with how the quarterbacks interviewed the poise of the questions. And I asked tough questions. I asked Brock Vandergriff 
about the possibility of another quarterback coming in. And in short, Brock said the development and the lessons that he's learning working under Todd Munkin and the practice that he's getting against this elite defense is valuable to him. Even if he's not playing on Saturdays, he's growing and learning. When you listen to the Brock Vandegrift interview, he sounds like a coach. He doesn't sound like a player. I was very, very impressed. I don't think Gunner stopped smiling the whole time I interviewed him. You want to talk about a kid that loves Georgia football? I mean, that just loves being there? I mean, that's the guy. So pretty fascinated. Now, some guys announcing returns, going pro. We mentioned Keely Ringo. No surprise. I think it's any time Broderick Jones will announce. He could be the first offensive tackle picked. Uh, Jalen Carter has announced. Uh, obviously, Nolan Smith is not coming back. You know, Kenny McIntosh not coming back. Chris Smith. Uh, Jack Podlesny, as things stand, still has accepted a Senior Bowl invitation. Uh, the big name that we're waiting on is Cedric Van Pran. Now, I'll tell you, Cedric was not in the interview room, and I don't believe in coincidences. So, uh, Cedric, a team captain last night, I think, you know, Georgia probably will do what they can to try to keep Cedric around another year. Uh, he probably will be the third center taken in the draft, and that can be anywhere from second round to fourth round. Um, I don't know where Cedric's at health-wise, financially, uh, mentally, lifestyle, what he wants. College is hard. The college game is hard. And yet, it's where guys always gravitate back to. And Kirby said it last night. These guys go to the NFL. They spend their whole time fighting, can't wait to go to the NFL. And then they go to the NFL, and all they want to do is be back in the college locker room with the brothers. And all they want to do be back is on their college campus because in the NFL – that guy across the room from me is trying to take your job. It's a business. You know, I sat down and I actually talked with Smile Munden. I interviewed him for a few minutes, and then I got engaged in conversation. Smile Munden, a really fascinating player. I can't wait for you to learn more about him next year as a person. We saw what he did as a player. He led the team in tackles. Fantastic football player, future NFL player. But a really dry sense of humor, a really uh, just one of those neat kids. You meet these players, and you meet their personalities, and some of them, you just can't help but like them, right? Like you met Kenny McIntosh and Kendall Milton on K&M Squared. You can't help but like those guys. Smile Monday in the same way. And, uh, you know, I was telling him that. I said, you know, man, you guys going out there, you're going to get this second title, and then you're going to have a chance at three. I said, that's going to be history. You win three, that's going to be. And this was, I was two days before the game. I was I was just as confident they were they were going to win the game. He said, man, I said, and I said, the things you're doing right now, you're going to remember to your deathbed. I said, you know, I, I know everybody goes to the league. I said, but I'm telling you, you know, I was reflecting on the 98 Tennessee team. That's all we talk about with those guys. They, you know, I could say, oh, hey, Al Wilson, or, you know, you went on and you were all pro with the Denver Broncos. He don't want to talk about that. Or Jamal Lewis, you you rushed for 2,000 yards in the NFL with the Ravens. Want to sue. Jamal doesn't want to talk about that. They want to talk about the 98 Vols. They want to talk about what they did with their quote-unquote family, right? I, I thought that's fat. And I told that to Smile. And he said, man, that's what all the guys coming back say. I said, it's because it's true. It's true. And you just kind of saw that look like this is resonating, right? And he's not just hearing it from coaches. He's not just hearing it from former teammates that he thinks maybe the coaches. He's hearing it from some reporter that he's never really talked to one-on-one. -on -one, just a guy saying, look, man, been in the business a long time. This is it. What you're doing now, this is it. So excited about next year's team. You can tell uh, what happened um, Monday night. <laughs> Uh, we've written so many stories about it. I've documented it so much. I know the fans are are still on that high 
Um, you know, for me, I'm on to the next story. I kind of saw the game coming. I kind of talked about it before it was going to happen. Uh, and it, it all came to fruition. Uh, Georgia was every bit as good, even better than I thought. And uh, happy for the players because of how much they put in. Uh, Love the way the story ended. You know, this was a Georgia team, if we're being honest. They were inconsistent. They were up and down, like Stetson said. It was like they were waiting for somebody to beat them. Nobody did. But the thing I liked about it, the happy ending for me, was all year long Kirby said we hadn't played our best game. Well, you saw their best game. And they delivered it on the biggest stage uh, at the biggest moment with everything on the line. And when a team plays their best game in that moment, Man, that's something special. It doesn't always happen. In fact, it rarely happens. In fact, I mentioned the 98 Tennessee Vols. Man, they, they played like garbage and beat Florida State that. That was not a pretty game. They did not play well. Um, you know, you think about some of the great Georgia, even last year's Georgia team. They didn't play good for three quarters. The offense was was not good. It was it was less than good. The defense was outstanding, but that was not I didn't that watching that game was like pulling teeth, right? That game last night, if you were a Georgia fan, Wow, you probably didn't stop cheering until the final seconds because it was a thrill a minute with one play after another offensively and defensively. So uh, pretty exciting stuff there. Uh, before I bring uh, Coach Jeremy Pruitt on, I want to take a look at ESPN's way too early top 25 uh, before we go to our halftime break and bring on Coach Pruitt and get some expert analysis of, of what he saw. Obviously, Georgia preseason number one. Is that not remarkable? Um, you know, man, Kirby Smart, number Ohio State, number two, no surprise. Uh, need to see who their quarterback's going to be. They're going to miss CJ Stroud, Michigan, three, really? Okay, all right, all right, Florida State, four. I know they finished pretty hot. Uh, Bama, five, Penn State, six, USC, seven, Caleb Williams back, LSU, eight. That looks a little low to me. Looks a little low to me when you consider they got 10 offensive starters back and both quarterbacks. I mean, I'm going to give Brian Kelly a little more tre- credit. How about Dan Lanning and the Ducks at number nine? Bo Nix is back. I think that's a little low. Tennessee Vols at 10. Um, you know, a lot of those Jeremy Pruitt players are moving on. There was a lot of seniors in that group last year. It'll be interesting to see what the Vols do. Jalen Hyde is moving on. Uh, obviously, Hendon Hooker is moving on. I like Joe Milton, but he doesn't have Hooker mobility. Got a big arm. Be interesting to see if Josh Heupel can match those high expectations. Washington 11, TCU 12. Got to feel bad for Sonny Dykes. Let me tell you, Sonny Dykes is probably one of the most well-liked men in the profession. His dad had a great reputation. He has a great reputation. I looked it up, folks. 150 games for Sonny Dykes as a head coach. He has only been held to seven points one other time back in 2014 at Cal. They lost to Washington 31 to seven. He was a gentleman. Uh, He did not say anything bad about Georgia. He praised Georgia. He looked internally. He said, look in the mirror. Uh, I do believe TCU will be back. Uh, Congratulations to TCU, by the way, the first team from Texas to make the college football playoff. Uh, Utah Utes 13, Notre Dame 14, Clemson 15. Has Dabo lost the handle? Hey, how about Texas? Eli Eli Manning. I keep wanting to call him Eli. Arch Manning, you chose Texas. All gas, no brakes. Uh, You lost to TCU 17-7. to Let's see what happens for Steve Sarkeesian in year three after an eight and five season last year. How about Oregon State 17 with DJU transferring in there? Kansas State 18. Uh, They look good against Alabama for a minute. Uh, before the tide rolled them. Tulane, 19. I'm just not drinking that Kool-Aid. 
Ole Miss 20, Lane Kiffin. They like him on Twitter. It's the only reason I can believe he's there uh, at that ranking. Uh, North Carolina 21, I like Mac Brown. I think he's built a good program, but I think there's a ceiling for North Carolina football like there is Kentucky. Uh, UTSA Roadrunners, we're starting to get reached deep here. Texas Tech, James Madison, uh, and Iowa 25. Oh, gosh, you know, you get past where, where, where did we really start to see the drop off? What was the last legit name I called out there? Maybe Texas at 16. We're going to a 12-team playoff. Hey, man, I am going to take our halftime break with Ingles. They bring you this special presentation. Usually we sponsor Ingles. And when we come back, we're going to bring the expert on. All right, welcome back to the show. Not sure about our Ingalls commercial there. Hope that spot played with our producer, Michael Carvel. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt joins us now. And Coach, uh, I guess I'll just ask you, initial impressions from 65 to 7. You predicted a Georgia victory and a, and a Georgia cover, but uh, I, I don't think anybody saw 65 to 7 coming. No, I, absolutely. I, <clears throat> just going back, I think you said it, just sitting here listening to you, Mike. I think that was a complete game by Georgia. Um you know, obviously defensively the last couple of weeks had given up uh, more than they're accustomed to, uh, rallied behind, got a lot of pressure on the quarterback, completely dominated the game up front, uh, done a fantastic job covering guys in the in the back end, uh, created a lot of mismatches one-on-ones uh, in protection. And then uh, offensively just uh, Kirby and Todd Munkin and his staff just – uh, what a game plan. You know, it, it really looked like that TCU was playing with eight and nine defenders out there. Uh, and Stetson Bennett continues to be Stetson Bennett. If if we had voted on the Heisman uh, today, to me, my question is, who would have won? You know, <laughs> I, I mean, Stetson Bennett, uh, you know, he he's had a fabulous career. Uh, you know, I, I really enjoy listening to him address the media, uh, his appreciation for what – you know, the University of Georgia stands for what it means to him um, and uh, what a great ambassador uh, he is for the university. But uh, giving all the credit to his coaches and teammates. And uh, I, I just thought it was uh, I didn't I didn't expect that, Mike, just to tell you, I didn't I didn't expect it to be 65 to seven for sure. I thought maybe, you know, what, like I said, 34, 17, 34, 13. Uh, but, you know, going back kind of looking at the statistics for the season. I mean, everybody scored 40 points on TCU almost when you look at it, you know, and Georgia's got probably the best offense in college football. So, uh, but uh, again, I don't, I don't know what to say, just complete domination. Yeah. You know, Georgia finished the year. I looked at the statistics, Jeremy, and they finished the year averaging 41.1 points per game. And, and why is that important? That's exactly what Alabama averaged. They averaged exactly. Say, well, what, what does that make it? It does make a difference when Kirby Smart is recruiting. And we'll talk to Jeremy about that in a second. Uh, but those numbers do make a difference. Players do pay attention to that sort of thing. So just kind of a, a, a heat check for you on Stetson. 18 of 25, 304 yards and four touchdowns. You want to talk about efficiency. Uh, longest play, only 37 yards. I mean, TCU uh, wasn't going to get beat by the big play. You give them credit. 
but Georgia's execution just so clean. And Brock Bowers, you know, the TCU defensive coordinator, Joe Gillespie, Jeremy, he talks so much about Brock and how he's a Swiss Army knife and and how he was just going to try to keep things simple and let him play. That was the advice he got. Um, obviously, that wasn't good advice because Brock Bowers had seven catches for 152 yards and a touchdown. Lad McConkey, uh, man, we just don't talk enough about this guy. Five catches, 88 yards, two touchdowns. He had the 37-yard catch. So impressed with Lad. Uh, you know, Dejon Edwards, two catches for 12 yards. And then, you know, hey, Darnell Washington was out there. He played 42 snaps at less than 100%. Only one catch in 28 yards. But the, what he did on that offensive line, and, and I'll cut back to you here, Jeremy, how important is it to have that double tight end against a 3-3-5? That was something that you talked about a little bit last week about how a double tight end formation with a player like a Darnell Washington can create problems for a 3-3-5, regardless of the style of the 3-3-5? Well, you know, you you look at the run game, you see that uh, the, one of the first touchdowns, they run zone read and they arc the, they arc the four-eye, and Stetson runs 30 yards for a touchdown. Uh, you saw a few gap scheme plays, some counters, uh, some pin pulls, uh, the old buck sweep or Packer sweep, whatever you want to call it. You saw inside zone. Uh, you know, they really got whatever they wanted, just to be honest. Uh, uh, running the football, to me, the offensive line dominated the line of scrimmage. Uh, and then you look, um, you got um, – there was there was three really contested catches for touchdowns. Um, um, Lad won – Lad made one, Mitchell made one, um, and then the tight end made one down there in the end zone right before the half. You know, that turnover before the half was a backbreaker. Uh, and it was one of the, the plays that um, TCU ran on the first third down of the game. They ran the deep comeback. They threw an incompletion. And you can see the Georgia uh, defensive backs communicating. I think they were playing what we call Buster there or Cougar. And the corner is supposed to roll off at the sticks. Well, he didn't roll off. So they thought it was there. They come back with it. Uh, and then they throw a pick later on right before the half. So uh, against the same call. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it helped Darnell uh, Washington having him in the game. Uh, how do you turn him loose running down the field? That's the one guy. <laughs> uh, it's hard to miss him. Yeah, it's impressive. And to Jeremy's point, 44 carries for Georgia, 254 yards, 5.8 yards per carry against a, a pretty uh, decent TCU front seven. They've done a pretty good job against the run. Uh, Kenny McIntosh with eight carries for 50 yards. I, I kind of thought over the course of the season, Kenny was probably the most consistent performer, uh, especially, you know, you think about right out of the gate when he had nine catches for 120 yards against Oregon and uh, and then he kind of carried him in the month of November when when the passing game kind of sputtered a little bit. Uh, Stetson had slowed down. I, I'll tell you what, Jeremy, I suspect Stetson had a shoulder uh, that he played through this year. He wasn't quite right. A lot of times on the sideline, you'd see him rotating that arm. I think he got hurt in the Missouri game, and I think he was playing uh, at less than 100% with that shoulder uh, for a few weeks there because uh, he didn't look quite as sharp. Uh, in November as he did in other parts of the year. You mentioned Stetson, three carries, 39 yards. Stetson with the longest run of the game, 21 yards, and, and he went untouched. I mean, the blocking was outstanding, the way they were able to spread TCU out, to your point. Uh, you know, Georgia players, just they just dominated. I mean, they were. The, I, I looked at it, I felt like they were better at every position. Uh, you know, we mentioned Stetson's great numbers. We mentioned, uh, 
you know, Bowers with his huge 150-yard game. You know, A.D. Mitchell only one catch for 22 yards. But to your point, uh, I mean, that was a pivotal play. That was a contested yeah. catch. It was a jump ball. Stetson trusts the receiver to come down with it. And 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 that was big. Um, you know, and then, you know, when I looked at the other side, you were talking about that interception. I'm not sure if it's the play, uh, but Jalen Carter on one of those plays was bearing down on Duggan. And uh, on the interception I'm thinking about, uh, well, Bullard had two, so I can't say the Bullard interception, but uh, Duggan had to get rid of the ball early on an out route because Carter was bearing down. I went back and looked at the replay, man. He's going through two guys. He's going through a double team, and he's in Max Duggan's group. That's not supposed to happen. You put two guys on one, you're not, you're not supposed to get a bull rush back into your quarterback, but that pressure led to that interception because the ball came out early, and to your point, uh, you know, Bullard was sitting on it. He was ready. They jumped it, and Georgia was playing aggressive. It almost felt like, uh, you know, a baseball player timing the pitcher, right? You kind of get a feel for what this guy's got, what kind of speed he puts on his fastball. Uh, you know, what's he throwing out there? You mentioned how the DBs communicate. Maybe the different pitches equate to the different types of routes they're running. Um, how how accurate is that? Is that kind of the feel that that back seven gets as far as Kirby and Muschamp and, and Schumann, the brain trust over there, and you've been a part of that brain trust where y'all are just kind of sorting out what the offense is doing? Well, I'm sure, um, obviously, they've, they've watched plenty of tape. And, um, hey, in, in their system, uh, they can guard you a bunch of different ways, right? And so what they're trying to do is just figure out the odds, you know, whether, you know, it's two-by-two two formations, three-by-one, you know, if it's two-by-two, two, who's on the ball, who's off the ball? Does the routes change when the back's two mirrors the back away? Uh, did we change coverage based off why being in the core? Is it four open? You know, they got all these – things and and uh they have the answers for them you know they have the answers and, and i'm going to tell you like georgia had the best players last night right they also had the best coaches uh and i'm not knocking anybody uh at tcu uh just a phenomenal job um uh, you just look at building a program over the years sustaining not having to use the portal developing players uh losing a losing a very talented defensive coordinator in dan lanning uh, having somebody there like Will Muschamp, Glenn Schumann to develop, to replace, uh, you know, adding a Mike Bobo uh, uh, to the offensive staff. Uh, there's been there's been turnover, you know, losing Sam Pittman over the years. There's been turnover there on Georgia's staff, and, and that's what happens when you have success, and it's a credit. And I told you at the beginning of the season, the most important person in the program will be Kirby Smart. And I got tickled before the game because other nights you kept – Last week, you kept talking about Max Dugan, right? You know, with this type of quarterback, should we, you know, rush four? Should we do this? And I told you, you need to play Georgia defense, right? And I got tickled when they when uh, they asked Kirby before the game, you know, and his one word was aggression. You know, I got tickled. I thought, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I figured it would be. But uh, just a, a phenomenal year to go 15-0. and 0. And and I don't think um, – I mean, you think about I've coached at Georgia – I understand the expectations and uh, the standard uh, that everybody wants to achieve too. But to me, just what Kirby has done in the eight years um, and, 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 and really risen, you know, he's raised the bar, 
you know, two national championships in a row. And, and, and you talked about it in the, in the locker room after the game. It's kind of what I talked about last week when I saw them in a game they probably shouldn't have won. I'm not saying that Ohio State was better, but for that night, a lot of things went against them and they found a way to win. I watched them after the game. Uh, they were cool, calm, and collected, and they looked like they were on a mission, and you saw that this week. Yeah, you know, like you said, and in the locker room, yeah, there was a celebration, but it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, we just shocked the world. It, it, it Again, it wasn't like, oh, man, and now we're ready to go to the house. I mean, these guys like each other, Coach, and you've been a part of that as a player at Alabama. You've been a part of that on different coaching staffs when Florida State won a national championship and, and James Winston was there, and you were telling me the way he was able to rally those guys and how much those seminal players loved each other when you were a part of that national championship team. Uh, you know, you were part of Alabama, uh, and, and they're back-to-back. Obviously, there was a chemistry there, and, and I felt that, right? And I saw it at Tennessee uh, in 1998. Um, but what happened at Tennessee was when Al Wilson left the room, the heart and soul left the room. And there just wasn't that guy that was going to step up. And, and that complacency that Kirby Smart talks about, it crept in. They had seven guys picked in the top 53 of the draft in 1999, and they went nine and three. And it wasn't because T. Martin forgot how to play football or Randy Sanders or Philip Fulmer couldn't coach or, or Deion Grant didn't know how. It was because the team leader that held them accountable left the huddle and the players were complacent, right? And, and they got outcoached a little bit. Um, there was a game or two that got away from it. But the point of it is they didn't keep that edge. And with Kirby and Georgia, uh, I just sense that it, it's it's not going away. So to me, and, and I know this is crazy because the Georgia people are like, oh, my gosh, we're just so happy to have two. Jeremy, I'm, I'm really thinking this team can win three. Like, I'm already moved on to that concept that there's no reason why. I, I, mean, I look at who's coming back defensively, and, and here's why. Jamon Dumas-Johnson is that L. Wilson. He's that dude, number 10, the guy they call Pops. And not only do you have Pops, but this Smile Munden cat – and, and I kind of watch them together. You know, Jamon's on the sideline, and he's jumping guys on the butt. And then there's, you know, Smile kind of pulling. I said, Smile, I said, you, you guys are kind of a good cop, bad cop, aren't you? He goes, yeah, man. He goes, Jamon lights him up. And, you know, I kind of pull the guy aside and be like, hey, man, it's all good. And I'm thinking that's, that's leadership. That's what you – that in a word, player accountability, Jeremy. And you've seen it from the time you were a player until now. And I've heard coaches talk about it. Players are less likely, maybe more resistant to get on their teammate. They don't want to be the, the guy that jumps on somebody, right? Nobody wants to be that guy that is sticking the finger in the face going, look, man, coach says it, he means it. How do you identify the guys, one, and two, from what your experiences are, the championship teams you've been a part of? Um, has that kind of been the case? Have there been those dudes in the huddle in addition to the great coaching staffs and talent? Yeah, I think um... – you know, obviously we've been around dominant leaders and um, that really can, you mentioned some that control a team. Uh, I've been on teams that we've won national championships that way. And I've been on teams that we've won national championships that the the coaches had to be the leaders, you know? So uh, it's just getting a feel for each team. And that's why, you know, you, you mentioned um, um, Tennessee, right? Well, I think Kirby's been a part of five or six. I don't know if it's five, six, seven. I don't know how many it's been, but uh, he's been he's been there and done that, right? So he understands the pitfalls. 
which we talked about early in the year and, and which would create a huge advantage uh, for Georgia. But I'm going to tell you, just listening to you talk right now about like what slows Georgia down, I think we got to let them breathe a little bit. You know, they put they put a lot of time and effort in, into this 15-game season. Uh, and here you are, Mike, you're already leading the charge for next year. You know, <laughs> they, ain't even got a, they ain't even got warm in their couches yet. You know, just give them a few days off, man. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because we asked Kirby about it and and he said he's going to be – he's already – he's worried about next year's team. He said he's going to be thinking about it on the plane. Um, I, I guess it's just being around that culture – and being around that building. And I said on the podcast last week that this reminded me of, of the Gene Stallings Alabama teams. You were part of. You were part of that. And you could feel the camaraderie uh, in, in that at Alabama in the 1990s. I don't know what it's like under Coach Saban now. You do. Obviously, he's had tremendous success. You see guys from all over the country that are coming in there. But back in the day, quote unquote, it was a lot of Alabama guys that loved Alabama. It was a very regional team, and you could just feel the respect uh, and the honor for the program. The fact you you got to live in Bryant Hall that meant something to live in that building where legends had preceded you. You got to wear that Crimson Tide uniform um, that every kid in Alabama grew up wanting to be a part of, and you just sensed that the players put the program above all else. And, and I don't know that I saw that uh, as often other play. Michigan State had a little bit of that going. There's no way they should have ever been in a playoff. There's no way they should ever beat Michigan seven out of nine times or, or beat those Ohio State teams with Ezekiel Elliott. But they had that, uh, that camaraderie that puts those teams over the edge. But I'll tell you what, man, you take the talent that Georgia has and you take that staff that Georgia has and then you add that nth degree of commitment to the G to the school that's what's winning championships I mean they shouldn't have gone 15 and oh coach they lost 15 guys to the NFL man there were guys that had to grow up as this year progressed we watched Georgia and that was the inconsistency young players growing into roles uh, filling gaps, coaches adjusting as the season went on. I wanted to ask you, and you did watch the game, and you did predict exactly. Well, I, I, I want to I ask you a question. Okay, okay. All right. You say they shouldn't have went 15-0. and 0. Who, right. was, who was better than them? Well, well, I mean, on paper, they shouldn't. I mean, they, they deserved to win every game. They were favored in every game. You're, and you're, looking back, they won every game. But my point is, theoretically, we'd never seen a team lose 15 guys to the NFL. And come back to, much less. Right. That's what I meant by yeah, that. Yeah, it, it's hard to sustain. It's hard to keep doing it over and over and over, which is a credit to the staff, right? It, there's been teams that's been like them. You could look at the end of the year and say, well, who was better than them? Well, nobody was, but they lost two games. You know, uh, I, I mean, that happens every year, right? So it's not about who's got the best team. It's who performs the best, you know, in those 60 minutes on those Saturdays, right? And it's hard to do. It's hard to keep it going, and it's a – uh, huge credit to, to Kirby and his staff. But go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, that's okay. Because I'm, I'm glad you gave me a chance to explain it. Because when I say it like that, that they shouldn't have, people come across like, well, why not? And it's like, no, no. I mean, I watched the season. I wrote about every game and every player. I'm just saying, theoretically, teams don't lose. First of all, nobody would ever lost 15 guys in one class to a draft. 
much less in a year where you got a portal and you lose another 13 guys, four of them starters. I mean, you want to talk about some, and then you're in the SEC on top of it. Now, I tend to believe this. I will say this. I do feel like college football has leveled out. I, I you know, to me, the, the closest, there were two other teams that had the talent to beat Georgia, in my opinion. Ohio State was one of them. And you saw, and, and Alabama was the other one because of the franchise quarterbacks and the, and the high level of, of talent. Because first things first, you just got to be able to match up with the guy across from you, right? I mean, right. again, to your point, Jeremy, teams could play a game 10 times. Like you, you said, Utah beat Florida 7 out of 10. I think you were right. And you only got to be better that night. And also, to your point, uh, you can have more talent, but you can only put 11 on the field at a time. So, you you know, obviously, you've given a few locker room talks and and been through a few wars yourself and seen teams overcome the odds. What I was going to ask you uh, was about how when you looked at TCU, and, and I know you, you know this year you kind of took a deep breath and spent some time with your family, but the football brain doesn't stop, man. What were you thinking? Like, what are some things that came to your mind when you saw that TCU offense, when you looked at it, before you came on and you told us exactly how Georgia was going to play them? What did you see, and what were your thoughts when you looked at what TCU did with Max Duggan and that offense? Well, um, you know, one thing that that really hurt them is every time they got the ball, they were seven or three more points behind, right? So I know that's not a whole lot of fun as a play caller. Uh, but, you know, I getting the ball out of the quarterback's hand, Georgia was able to create pressure multiple ways uh, by, by rushing four, by rushing five, uh, changing it up in the back end. Uh, there was a few six-man pressures. Um, but – you know, they, they struggled to convert third downs and they struggled to get in manageable third downs. I, I, I thought that um, I thought that TCU was going to have to protect their defense uh, because obviously there was a huge mismatch with Georgia's offense and TCU's defense. And the only way to be able to do that was run the football. Uh, and it seemed like, and there was a few times that TCU had some, some, um, uh, you know, gain, you know, four or five, six yards on first down on a run but they threw it on second down. It was incomplete, you know, so they needed, they needed a whole lot more uh, third and one to twos and more explosive plays. And they just couldn't find them to create them. It was yeah. hard for them to sustain and, and block Georgia over and over and over again. You know, TCU just two of 11 on third downs, Jeremy. And I think Georgia went three and out once at the start of the second half. That was the only, maybe they wanted to get the punter in the game or something. I think that's the only time that the kid punted. Um, you know, Georgia really unstoppable. And, and I'll tell you what else I thought, you know, I was sitting next to one of the SEC officials and I said, right here, Georgia needs a long, uh, drawn out drive. And you could just see Georgia wearing these guys out. And I'm thinking, I thought back to something you said about Florida this year. You didn't like Florida because you didn't think they had the depth on defense in the front. And I'm thinking to myself, how much more depth can TCU possibly have than Florida? Probably not much. And that long drawn out drive in the second quarter, I just thought, you know, Kirby is throwing some body blows right now, running the football, you know, that, that over the top, that's probably there, but the, the game plan, part of that game plan is probably to wear out that TCU front and just take its toll physically. We've seen Georgia do that. And they had this beautiful long 11 play, and I'm just thinking that that's that's just scripted, man. I mean, yeah, maybe Kirby could have gone over the top, right? But he didn't want that. He wants he knows as a coordinator what that does to your defense to be drawn out and, and just have your that other team just wear you out physically and mentally. And then to your point, 
the, the turnover before the half, right? You think you're going to get out of there. You know, you're holding on for dear life. If you're TCU, you want to get to the locker room, you know, catch your breath, make some adjustments. And gosh darn, if Georgia doesn't put another one on you. And now it's 38 to 7. I mean, just mentally, I think so much of this game is psychological. And I think Georgia served a message early on to TCU that, no, you do not belong here. This is not Michigan football. I heard so many people say, well, you know, they beat Michigan. I said, man, this ain't Michigan. Like, I don't know if you missed the Orange Bowl last year, but this, George is not Michigan. This is a different uh, – this Georgia Bulldog is a different animal than, than this Michigan Wolverine and his coach with the size – a brain the size of a pea running a daggone reverse from the two-yard line on the open. I don't even know what's going on. I'm going to ask you for a comment on that, Jeremy. I know coaches don't usually criticize each other, and I don't want to – put you in that position because that was one of the worst calls in football history right there. Probably cost his team the game, but I digress. Georgia, different animal and Kirby just so ruthless, so aggressive. Like you said, the hunter, right? He came right out and said, right out of the gate, we're going after him. And uh, it was a bold strategy. Um, That's why it's fun to cover Kirby smart because he plays to win. He goes all out. Uh, You coached with Kirby. You've given us a lot of insight uh, into how Kirby Smart is. I want to touch on something, though, that you shared with me that I found fascinating. You told me this even before I talked to Todd Munkin in Indianapolis, and he told the story of the Mike Bobo hire. He said, yeah, he said, Kirby came to me, and you know, he, he wanted to ask me what I thought about hiring Mike Bobo and act like it was my decision, but it didn't matter what I said. He was going to hire him anyway. He said, and I said I was fine with it. And he talked about how Mike Bobo um, some of the duties that he performed, writing plays on cards and, and now contributing plays and and how that all worked out. And that was one of the questions I had. I said, oh, my goodness, you know, too many chiefs, not enough Indians, too many cooks spoil the soup. You're bringing Bobo in here and you're going to ask him to not be the guy after he's been a head coach and an OC and, and Brian McClendon, for that matter. And uh, and we're going to ask these guys to be team players. Uh, but but Munkin said this guy's unbelievable. He said he's been a tremendous help. And you had shared with me, you said, Mike, I don't, I don't think I don't know if you know it, but but Mike Bobo is considered one of the best. So I'll let you share some of that with the audience because you've got a, a personal uh background with Mike Bobo and what you think he was able to bring to that locker room. Yeah, I think it was awesome. Like uh not to take anything away from Coach Monk, and I think Coach Munkin has done a fantastic job. It's his offense, it's his show. Um but I was just talking about adding Mike Bobo to the staff. You talk about, number one, he's a Georgia guy uh, to me, which is really, really important. Uh, he's one of Kirby's closest friends. Uh, he understands what great is. Um, and, you know, he's a he's a team-first guy. And just having a guy that, that Kirby could really, um, you know, to lean on. Because I'm going to tell you, as a defensive head coach, you know, there's sometimes these offensive guys come in there and they got some ideas and you're kind of – thinking like, I don't think that's really a very good idea, you know? Uh, and sometimes you need a little reassurance, right? You know, I think about the first time I jumped off the diving board. I didn't really want to jump off that diving board, you know, but my mama was standing on the sideline saying, Jeremy, jump. So I jumped, right? So it helps, you know, sometimes to have somebody that you grew up with, like like Mike and Kirby, right? There's no telling, you know, they probably could tell a lot of wild tales about each other that goes back to, you know, from 94 to 2000. But um, I think I think uh, having uh, Will Muschamp last year, adding him to the staff, Mike Bobo, uh, 
Scott Cochran, uh, guys, Glenn Schumann, guys that have been with Kirby a long time. Um, you need guys that will that are not yes men. You need guys that will tell you, hey, I wouldn't do it that way. Hey, you need to think about it this way. Because uh, I'm going to tell you, uh, all the coaches that I've been around, which I've been very fortunate to be around a lot of great ones, uh, they never have all the answers. You know, you need to lean on the people in the room, and that's everybody in the room. Um, and I, I just think that Kirby has put a fantastic staff together. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be people – I mean, hey, if I'm an NFL franchise right now and I'm looking for a head coach, I mean, Todd Munkin, he's had a lot of experience. He's been a head coach, um, and he's been in the NFL. I mean, I'm not trying to advertise and be his agent here, but, hey, <laughs> what the, the product that he's put on the field the last couple of years is fantastic. Uh, and, you know, so I'm sure after the these games are over with, there'll be people trying to hire some of Georgia's coaches. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, early in the show, I was I was reflecting on on how Nicobe Dean came back and and how players are about their collegiate careers. And you've had an opportunity now to coach in the NFL as well as uh, in the collegiate ranks. Um, what are some of the differences that you noticed? I mean, as I said, you spent the year with the Giants last year, uh, and and that's one club. But I think you have a pretty good idea, and I'm sure these are conversations that you've had with players over the years that you've recruited that trust you uh, that say, you know, Hey coach, I'm thinking about coming out or I'm thinking about, uh, you know, returning to the school and you've had these sort the same sort of conversations about college versus pros, you know, what's kind of been your philosophy and thought on that as far as the decisions these young guys are making right now, what do they have to take into account and, and what are those conversations like? Well, I think first off is a, as any coach, you, you, you want what's best. Uh, for your players. You know, a lot of people think, oh, they don't want them to go out to the draft. No, uh, I can tell you that Kirby wants his players to get drafted as high as they possibly can because that does nothing. Number one, help the the, the student athlete that has poured into his program. Uh, it helps them um, down the road because uh, the higher you're drafted, the more invested, obviously, the NFL team is in you, and it looks good in recruiting, right? But you try to get them as much information as you can and Obviously, with the connections that they have at Georgia, with the with the GMs, the owners, um, you know it, that that's that's where they're going to get the information. If there's people that are trying to decide uh, over the next couple of days, um, um, they'll, they'll have these conversations. They'll have the conversations with GMs and owners and say, "Hey, where do you have these guys on your draft board?" You know, so uh, obviously the position sometimes can dictate that, you know, because there's certain positions that obviously are drafted higher uh, than other ones, you know, so sometimes you may not can improve your draft stock. So all these things kind of, you know, go in together to, to figure it out. How, how important are, are the, are the all-star games specifically the senior bowl? There's been a lot of Alabama and Auburn guys that have played there over the years. Georgia's got a few guys going there. Uh, just in general, I know the NFL draft process is multi-tiered. A lot of the work gets done during the season as far as the film and interviewing the coaches and, and going and interviewing and observing guys in person. Um, but are the, are the all-star games, can they play a key role one? And then if you'll just take off from that, um, you know, Stetson Bennett, right. We've, we've talked to Jim Nagy. Uh, Jim is a friend of dog nation and, and certainly one of the most respected NFL scouts, former NFL scouts out there. Now the senior bowl executive director. And he said, Hey, there's teams that have a fifth to seventh round grade on Stetson. Jim thinks he deserves a chance uh, to go to the NFL. Uh, what, what will have to happen 
for Stetson to go to the NFL. So kind of a, a two-part question. One, the all-star games as part of the NFL draft process. And then two, what would the path be for Stetson to get drafted in terms of, uh, you know, when he might be able to meet with teams, how he would meet with teams and what teams would want to see, would want to see. Well, I just think uh, just starting with the all-star games, um, you know, it's uh, when you got the 32 teams in the NFL, they're, they're all different, right? So, um, and, and, and some of the teams, uh, you know, it's really controlled by the GM and the scouts and the people in uh, that part of it. Um, some teams are more controlled by the coaches uh, or the coaches have the head coach may have control, but it's probably somewhere in between. Right. So, hey, right over the last, um, you know, couple of years, the scouts have been out and they've been coming to Georgia's practices and they've been seeing them. They may different guys have went to games, but uh, it's the first time in an all-star game to kind of uh, see them in a practice setting for a lot of people that may have influence. Uh, and then when you start talking about the pro days and the combine and, and building those relationships and asking tough questions, just trying to, uh, to figure out, Hey, who is this guy? Right. So um, it, there's, there's not an exact science to it. Uh, but I do believe that, when you look at the guys who play at Georgia and play in the SEC uh, and the way the practices are structured, uh, they they you've got guys that that know how to work. They know what toughness is. Uh, they know what accountability is, uh, and they usually turn out to be pretty good pros. And then, as far as Stetson, would an All Star game be important to him? And what are those workouts like uh, for quarterbacks when they bring them in? I mean, do they put them through the ropes? What do they? What kind of things might they want to see? Well, I, you know, obviously uh, it, it's about starts with, um, you know, size, speed, makeup, all that, right? Uh, but arm talent, right, to, you know, to to win. Everybody wants to win a Super Bowl. To win a Super Bowl, you've got to be able to make all the throws. you got to be able to handle a lot. And I think you look at this year, I mean, uh, I heard you talking about the quarterbacks for next year, and you were talking about uh, somebody's size. Well, Stetson's not very big, you know, Bryce – Bryce Young's not very big, right? But man, those two guys are are phenomenal playmakers and quarterbacks. And um, I think over the last couple of years, at every level, you know, used to you didn't say quarterbacks come in all shapes and sizes when it comes to the NFL. But now, if you look across the league, uh, you know, everybody's not six three plus. You know, so uh, the game has changed a little bit. I think a lot of it has to do with um, guys changing teams a lot. I think the game is a little simpler. Um, I don't think you can do as much scheme. They don't stay as, they don't stay on the same team as long, right? So uh, you see a lot more uh, college aspect of RPOs and progression reads and things like that because when you draft these guys, I mean, heck, uh, the rookie contract, you know, after the third or fourth, four, what is it, fourth year, you're deciding are you going to take the fifth-year option, right? So when you draft them, you need them to play right now. Uh, but, um, but I think Stetson, I think Stetson, uh, with his background, he'll have an opportunity to make a team and Hey, he's a competitor. He's a winner. And he seems to find a way. I'd be remiss coach. If I didn't ask you about coach Rick, you know, they announced that coach Rick is going into the college football hall of fame. I know in our conversations, both on the air and privately, you, you've told me that coach Rick was, was really good to you and how much you appreciated him. I guess I would ask you, uh, you know, about your thoughts about seeing Coach Rick go in the Hall of Fame and, and what it meant to you to see him have that honor. Yeah, I mean, just I, I go back and think about 
when I was a high school coach. Uh, it was 2000, 2001. Uh, I was coaching at Fort Payne High School. I go over and watch uh, Georgia uh, in spring ball. Neil Calloway was the old line coach. Willie Martinez was the DB coach. Um, and I'm, those were some of the physicalest practices I've ever seen. Uh, just how I think, um, I mean, Pollock and those guys might have been playing then. It, it was, I remember Baloo. I mean, there was, there was a lot. Thomas Davis, I remember him. I mean, it was physical practices. And yeah, Greg Blue, Greg Blue, that safety. Greg Blue, right? yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I just remember sitting in the, in the DB room, but uh, having an opportunity to work with Coach Rick, you know, I, leaving Florida State, we just won the national championship, but the, the, two or three days that I had an opportunity to spend in Athens and just watch coach Rick and how he ran his program. I, I mean, I just thought what an opportunity to go coach with him and uh, probably learn more from coach Rick in the two years that I've worked with him than I've probably learned from everybody involved uh, because coach Rick was such a teacher, uh, not only about football, uh, but about how to live your life. Uh, and the lessons that and the lessons that you learn from that standpoint, we we talk, we tell stories all the time about uh, our daily devotions that we had with Coach Rick, things that went on, things that were said that you think back, you know, I've always been a guy that's just football, football, football. But Coach Rick uh, understood that there's something much bigger than football. And it's something that he shared with all of us and everybody that ever came in contact with him. And uh, it's an awesome honor. For him, and he is very deserving to be in the College Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, no doubt. You know, Kirby Smart had the opportunity to work under Coach Rick. And, you know, so many places when coaches change, you got to like the guy. And you now you don't like the other guy. But George is so unique that, you know, Kirby has so much respect for Mark Rick. And you, you can just feel the torch passing. And there, there was no bad blood. There was no... Uh, there was no uh, animosity between the two. It kind of really reminds me of, of really the approach. And I guess I would ask you this is, you know, now, you know, we've kind of wound down with the season and we, we've actually ended up with a lot of Tennessee viewers, believe it or not, they, they kind of found you there, coach. They, they're always interested in your opinions. Um, but you, you haven't had any of that. A lot of people thought, Oh, you know, Jeremy's not at Tennessee anymore. And, and, and it's not like you, you, you've praised Josh Heupel, I think as much as anyone and I don't know that fans really know exactly how to, you know, interpret that. You know, the, the rivalries go so deep. You know, well, you know, uh, Jeremy's an Alabama guy. Well, no, actually he coached at Tennessee. Well, he coached at Georgia. Uh, how do you explain that level of professionalism and I guess just, um, you know, the football admiration that you coaches have for one another? I mean, for the fans, it's it's 365. You know, but the coaches have this, this unique respect in the business and, and again, you've said so much about Tennessee that, that's been positive this year when a lot of people could say, well, wasn't he bitter or angry that it's not him? That it's like, nah, you know, no, nah, he's you know, Jeremy's moved on. I mean, this is a this is a business right now, but how do you put that into perspective? Well, well make no mistake, I'm an Alabama guy. <laughs> First of all. Uh, but um no, I mean it's it's uh you know, you, you mature, you, you, you learn. I, my dad's obviously a coach and from a young age, you know, it's either going really good uh, or it's not very good at all uh, for a coach's son. So, you know, it, it, I, for most people, they grow up, their dad is one of their, 
the most important people in their life, right? The guy that they strive to be like, and it's not a whole lot of fun to hear people talk negative about your dad, you know? So luckily enough, I've, uh, he had a lot of success and I didn't hear it a lot, but I can, I can remember those times that I did, but you know, Hey, in the, in the coaching profession, everybody is, if you get in this profession, you're, you're, you you're trying to serve others. Um, and you know, none of us are perfect. There's no perfect players. There's no perfect coaches. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like my dad used to tell me, you know, quit telling him to catch the ball, tell him how to catch the ball, you know, uh, he wants to catch it, okay? So don't say catch the ball, tell him how. So being a very good teacher, uh, just really having a servant attitude. So uh, I, I have nothing but respect for people that are in this business. It's not an it, it it's a it's a it's a joy it's a fulfilling business, right? And what you get to do to help develop young young people, uh, but at the same time, there's sacrifices that you have to make uh, from time away from your own family. And I just thought you know, uh, kind of hit home with me last night because I know Sonny Smart and I know how important that game uh, was to him and for Kirby and I know their relationship and I, uh, little Andrew, um, you know, and, and Kirby's family there. It, it, it just amazing time flies and how people grow up, you know. So uh, we, we love this game. We all do. And it's been very good for all of us. But at the end of the day, it's still just a game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, I think you've, you've done a great job breaking it down and certainly the perspective that you give it's, it's unique, it's insightful. And, and I think, um, you know, I know a lot of Georgia fans uh, appreciate uh, all the insights you share and, and I, I love having you on, man. I, I, I kind of hate that we're getting to an end. I'm going to come up with excuses to keep bringing you back senior bowl week, uh, NFL draft. I got, I got to find excuses before, uh, you know, uh, before we get into the de- depths of the summer, we'll, we'll be talking about next year again. And as you said, I'm already, I'm already getting ahead of it. I'm already talking about three Pete. I got that on my brain now. I mean, I've, I've covered championship teams before and we've seen Alabama go back to back, but I I'm, I'm like this dog with this gristle piece of meat. I ain't letting it go coach. I think I might see a three Pete at Georgia next year because the players, right. They got, they got me infused with energy. That's, if you're wondering where it comes from and you see it and you talk about the coaches and what you get out of it, these young guys and their energy and their enthusiasm, man, just being in that locker room 30 minutes, it rubbed off. I felt it. Like you can feel it. It's unmistakable. You've been there. You've got all the national championship. What do you, I don't know, four or five, six, however many you got from different places, you know, that vibe and it's unmistakable when you feel it in Georgia football has got that. I want to thank everyone tonight for watching tonight's program uh, don't forget Dog Nation Daily, bright and early tomorrow, uh, out here in Pacific Time, 7, 10 o'clock your time. I'll be up with Brandon Adams. Uh, I want to thank my producer, Michael Carvel. And, of course, I want to thank uh, Coach Pruitt. And uh, as we head away, we're going to get our sponsor, Ingles, their break. We apologize for the technical difficulty earlier. We're going to recognize Ingles as we go on out, and we'll be talking to you later this week. Have a great week, everybody. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Good night. Thanks, Mike. See you.
Did you know that Ingalls sells more organics than any other store? Or that they run their own dairy? Or that they only serve USDA choice and prime meat? Did you know that they have more local craft beer than any place else? Or that they have energy smart stores? Or that they professionally slice and package imported cheese from Europe? Did you know about their giant international aisle, local farm partnerships, curbside pickup, wine department? Or that they donate 3,956 meals a day to local food banks? Well, now you do. It's all in the bag. Ingles, low prices, love the savings.